0: But I'm looking forward to spending some time together this morning in God's Word and in worship, just continuing our time together this morning as a body. And as I was thinking through that, I was reminded of a, a passage of Scripture that my kids have been memorizing. Um, it's, uh, David says this in reference to Jerusalem and to the temple. And in Psalm 122, when it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? This morning we're going to be back in the book of First Peter. We've kind of uh, we've taken a sabbatical, if you will, from First Peter for a little while. We're going to jump back in here in chapter two. Thus far, or just to give you a little recap, because it's been a little while, we've covered Peter's very rich, very in-depth introduction there in the first two verses, followed by some what we call resulting realities of being reborn, such as the source of our joy how we respond to suffering and the security of our salvation. We left off last time at the end of chapter 1 with some practical ways that Christ followers are to respond to having been rescued from sin and given new life, concluding with this call or a command to love one another. And that's where we're going to pick up again this morning. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's all stand in honor of God's Word as we read together verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious." Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the, just the, the great time of, of food and fellowship and study this morning. We thank you for the access that we have to your word. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us. Lord, I pray this morning as we, as we dive into this letter uh, from Peter to these believers we pray that you would, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would speak through me, Lord, that these would be your words and not mine, Lord, that, that, that your truth, that your message would be conveyed clearly and that you would open hearts and minds to not only to hear it but to receive it, that it would take root and that we would become more like you as we leave this place and go out into the sphere of influence that you have given us. Lord, we love you and we praise you and it's in Christ's name, amen, and you may be seated. Here in chapter 2, Peter carries over this theme of our response to new life from the end of chapter 1 into the beginning here of chapter 2. And today we're going to look specifically at how to live intentionally for the glory of God. How to live intentionally for the glory of God. So we're going to focus first on the first three verses. The first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. That's on page 1,294, just in case you're still trying to find it. 1 Peter 2, 1-3. through 3, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now it's important to note here, before we dig in too much, that we do not bring anything to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. However, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking of our salvation as an exclusively past tense event and the pursuit of holiness as a passive endeavor. And what I mean by this is, in our culture we often find this false understanding of salvation where we ask Jesus into our hearts, where we claim to be saved. We, we, we take the name of Jesus and then we go from there about our self-centered lives, waiting on the Lord to make us more like Him. And then we act surprised when we have professing believers in the church today who look no more like Christ, whose everyday lives look a little different than they did when they first professed faith 20 years ago or more. The reality is we have an active role to play in the pursuit of holiness. Holiness. We'll never just magically become more Christ-like and left to our own devices, we will have no desire to be Christ-like. We will have no desire for the things of God. We will not even recognize our need for Him and we can't change our hearts. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can give new life. Only through a supernatural heart change can we as sinners come to Christ. We would never choose Him on our own. However, When He changes hearts, He enables us to pursue Him. He enables us to love Him. He enables us to desire Him. He enables us to grow in personal holiness, and therefore He can expect yet even command that our new hearts behave differently than our old ones. That takes work and effort and discipline on our part through the power of God, but it takes work and effort on our part. That takes sacrifice and devotion, and that in no way, our work in no way earns us favor or standing with God, but that desire can only come from a supernaturally changed heart. And our desire for and pursuit of personal holiness, our, our willingness to repent, serves as proof of life, if you will. Throughout this letter, Peter repeatedly calls his readers to action in regards to holy living, and today's text is no different. Here at the beginning of chapter 2, he calls believers to what we're going to call embrace this new life, to to dig into it, to put off the old and put on the new. At the end of chapter 1, we looked at the positive command, to love one another because of the love that has been shown to us in Christ. And today he moves from the positive to the negative, from do this to don't do this. We are not to just add love to our repertoire. We can't just stay the same and add sincere brotherly love. It doesn't work that way. But we are to recognize and get rid of the old desires of our hearts. This phrase here at the beginning of chapter or of chapter 2 verse 1, so put away is akin to or like a man getting dressed or getting undressed if you will. Take off your dirty clothes. Take off your dirty garments put them away. It's this idea of removing and setting to the side. They they once clothed you. They once were part of your identity, part of how people saw you, but no more. Take them off and put them away. So what are these these dirty garments then? He starts here with the whole and then gives us the parts. So look here. He says, put away all malice. So we're going to start there. What is malice? Malice is a heart condition. Malice deals with intent. It's the intent to cause harm or injury. Whether it actually does or not, whether you act on it or not, malice refers to the intent of the heart. And then look at the list that follows that. Put away all malice and deceit. All right? Deceit is malice. Deceit is malicious. Deceit is intentionally covering or obstructing or hiding the truth then look at the next one hypocrisy hypocrisy is malice hypocrisy is malicious hypocrites intentionally pretend to be something or someone they are not and this is a big one because how often are christ followers how often is the church today accused of hypocrisy but here's the deal that cannot be true that can't be true not of believers and not of the church now, I used to think that this charge was fairly leveled because so often we fall short of God's standards. We do. We say this is God's standard, yet we fail to meet that. We fail to live and respond in a Christian way, but that's, that's not hypocrisy. That's, that's actually a, a, a false charge. That should be a false charge. Hypocrisy in the church or in the Christian is to say or live as if you have no sin. That's hypocrisy. To say or live as if you have no sin. If I say I have no sin, is my life going to match my claim? Absolutely not. That is to be a hypocrite. Now, we wouldn't often come out and say that, but we live that way. And we know that can't be true because in 1 John 1, 1.8, we see John says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's not possible. That's not true. We most likely would never say that we're sinless. We wouldn't make that claim. We acknowledge the fact that we're sinners, but how often do we view other people as extremely sinful and ourselves or our own actions as not so bad? I'm not as bad as them. That's the same heart attitude. We verbally acknowledge that we're sinners, but we presume upon God's grace as if we're not really all that guilty. That's this this is hypocrisy. This is this and this is malice. Hypocrisy is malicious. Envy is the next one. Envy is malicious. It's wanting someone else's things or someone else's life or someone else's finances, etc. It comes from a selfish heart that feels that God is withholding something that I deserve. That it has a plan that's better than God's plan for my life. Then my heart has a plan that's better than God's. That's that's what envy says. In many ways envy is theft at a heart level. Theft at a heart level. That's malice. Slander, the last one. Slander is malicious. How often are we quick to respond and slow to think? That's backwards. We know just the words to say to push someone's buttons or Just how to phrase something to inflict maximum hurt. How quick we are to talk about others, whether true or false, behind their backs. That's slander. James discusses the dangers of our tongues in chapter 3. Look at specifically at verse 9. James says, With it being our tongues, our mouth, our speech, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. None of these things are or can be acceptable in the lives of God's people. But notice he doesn't say that these things will go away. He doesn't say once you come to Christ, these things are no longer true. He says, put them away. Take them off. Take off those dirty clothes and get rid of them. In order to love one another sincerely, we have to fight the sinful malice in our hearts. Well, how do we do that? How does that work? Look at verse 2. The alternative there, he says, long for the spiritual milk like newborn infants. So what's he talking about? Well, like newborn babies need their mother's milk, and if you've had a baby, they need it. Trust me. They will let you know when it's time. Anyone who's ever been around a baby, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How strong is that desire? Some of y'all hadn't woke up yet this morning. Yeah, it's pretty strong, right? All right, what happens if an infant doesn't get that bottle when it's time to eat? It's not fun. It's not pretty. They scream and cry and slobber and all this kind of stuff. They're inconsolable because they know what they need and they have to have it. It's essential and they need it now. And they need it right now. Not in ten minutes, not when it's warm. They, they want it now. They expect it right now. They've got to have it. But not only that, the amazing thing about that is it's perfectly formulated to be exactly what their young bodies need at that stage in their lives. They don't necessarily understand all that yet. All they know is they need it. They need it. They have to have it. Now, the, the spiritual milk here is referring back to chapter 1, verse 25. It's a, it's a metaphor for God's Word. We have to be careful anytime we're dealing with metaphors and not take the metaphor too far. Peter is not saying that we start with God's Word and then progress to something better, like a child progresses from milk to solid food. Now, Paul does use that metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3 in regards to spiritual growth or lack thereof in the the church in Corinth. And the author of Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews 5. But that's not what Peter's talking about. Peter is using that metaphor to make a different point. Peter's point is that we should desire God's milk. We should desire God's word as an infant desires his mother's milk. We grow in holiness through the word of God. And if we've had our hearts changed to recognize the goodness of God through the gospel, then we should desire or long for His Word with the same tenacity as an infant does its milk. And guess what? It's exactly what we need. It's perfectly formulated to be what we need right now. How many of you have ever found that that is true? We've gone to God's Word and found the exact answer for what you're struggling with. This, this desire, this yearning for God's Word serves as evidence of a supernatural heart change. Since we had breakfast together as a body this morning, I'm gonna, we'll use liver pudding as an example. That's a South Carolina analogy if there ever was one. What conclusions would you draw from someone who gets a big helping of liver pudding, tries it, rants and raves about how great it is and how much they love it, but never takes another bite. What conclusion would you draw? That they don't really like it. That's right. That's a true story, by the way, of one of my children, and I'm not going to rat out which one. That did happen. <clears throat> I'll, let the, I'll, I'll let the guilty remain unnamed. But the conclusion was that they can say whatever they want. Eddie's grinning because he knows who it is. <laughs> they can say whatever they want, but the, the truth is they didn't really like it, and we know that because there was no desire for any more. All right. There was no desire for anything else. Their actions say otherwise. If you've tasted the goodness of God in His Word, then it should be reflected in a longing for more and more and more and more. A craving, a desire, I can't get enough, I've got to go, I've got to have more. Driven to the Word. But it's not just taking off the dirty clothes and putting them away. He says here we're to take off the dirty clothes and put on new ones, put on clean ones, put away all malice, the evil intent, the evil intentions of our hearts, and long for the pure spiritual milk. Replace that with God's Word. There are some people who do things half-heartedly. We all know people like what I'm talking about. There are people who do things half-heartedly, and there are people who, if they're going to do something, they're going to do it all out, right? We know these people. You can immediately probably think of people in each category, in each camp. We know people like this. Some people just do things because maybe they enjoy it. It's kind of fun. Uh, And then you have people who, if they're going to do it, they're going to be all out. They're going to have all the equipment. They're going to have all the gear. They're going to do it. They're going to strive to do it perfect, and they're like all consumed by it, right? All right, yeah. This means yes. This means no. It's okay. You can respond. All right, there we go. Or we know people like that. I'm not going to say which... If you want to know which camp i fall into, you can ask my wife later, not right now. But what Peter's saying is jump in all the way. We should be the latter category. Go all in. Embrace this new life that you've been given. Get rid of whatever is left of the old sinful life. Put those things to death. Take those things off and get rid of them. And put on the new. Repent of sin and pursue holiness. And we're going to see him expound on that later in this letter. But not only should you embrace, lean into this new life in Christ, but you should also remember that this new life that you've been given is not all about you. Look at verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, as they were destined to do. Notice here that Jesus is described as a living stone, chosen and precious of God. This term for stone here is a building stone. Think of like a a brick, if you will. Specifically here, the cornerstone, which begins and ties the foundation of a building together. Not only is it, it's not the foundation, it's the foundation of the foundation. It's the starting point that the rest of the building hinges on. It has to be perfectly shaped because the entire building is resting on the perfection of the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is imperfect, the more you build, the more obvious it will be just how lopsided your building will be. The entire building is built off of that. An imperfect cornerstone will always lead to an unstable structure. Jesus is the living stone upon which the church is built. Two weeks ago we celebrated the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and He still lives today at the Father's side, interceding on the church's behalf. And it's upon Christ that the church is built and He is living and active today. And Jesus is that cornerstone. The teachings of the apostles, God's Word, is the foundation. The church is built upon that foundation and we are part of the church if we are in Christ. Paul describes this similarly in Ephesians 2 19 through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. But then notice how our believers are described. The same way. He says, like living stones. Because see, the reality is, if we are in Christ, we are, what that means is we are united with Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is why He has already established how we are to desire more and more and more of Him, to become more and more like Him. Because if we are believers, His Spirit lives within us. And here in this section, in this passage, we see lots of temple imagery, and that's very important. The temple was the place where God's presence was with the people. And the people's worship of God was routed through a priest who was allowed to approach God, to beseech God on their behalf. Through the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross and His rising again, His identity as the living stone, we are now able to function as a holy priesthood. Meaning we can approach God ourselves in prayer and worship. Worship Him ourselves through Christ anytime and anywhere. This is, this is huge. This is life-changing. This is what the new covenant is as opposed to the old covenant. But catch this important tidbit here. Look, look at the first part of verse 5. The living stones that represent believers are being built into a spiritual house or temple. If you look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2. The temple was the physical manifestation of God's presence with the people. It's where God's presence dwelled. So the people could look and see God's presence, that God was with them. According to this imagery here, who is this temple that God is building? It's, it's the church. Now, not, not the building, but the people. The church meaning God's redeemed people. So many professing believers today have become disenchanted with the church as an institution for one reason or another, and they believe that they can be a Christ follower on their own without being part of the church. I'll take Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. Take Jesus and leave the church. The problem with that is this is never the picture in Scripture. Notice who the builder is. Who is the builder in this passage? God is. Believers are described as like living stones being built into the spiritual house for the Lord. Rather than residing in the temple, the presence of God now dwells within us, His people. Believers themselves are the new temple, of the new covenant, a holy priesthood, priesthood being plural. Not a bunch of priests scattered around, singular, but a priesthood, a united priesthood, plural. We often act as if we can take God's presence and just keep it to ourselves. I'll I'll, I'll have God in me and I'll keep it over here and you can have God in you and keep it over there and we can be isolated and that's totally okay. We can each follow God alone. But that's not the intention. That's not how it was designed. We were intended to worship Him in community. We're not rocks scattered in a field that are completely autonomous. We are individual stones Again, there's a difference between the word rock in the Greek and the word stone. By stone, we're talking about something that has been shaped or molded that a builder can use to fit a certain spot. We're not rocks scattered in a field. We are individual stones shaped and hewn to fit together into one community, into one building, the church where God's presence dwells. We are individual pieces of a much bigger plan. Now, local churches are imperfect. Because people are imperfect, and refusing to participate in a local church or trying to be this lone wolf Christian doesn't make you any less imperfect. It does, however, highlight a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Because according to Peter here, coming coming to him in faith, in verse 4, and being fitted into the church, in verse 5, are inseparable acts. They're tied together. Those who, as you come to Him in faith, you are fitted into the building that He is building. You are fitted into the community of believers. And that insepar- those inseparable acts have eternal significance. He reaches back here in verse 6. He, he, he reaches back into the Old Testament. Quoting from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, if you if you want to jot that down, we're not going to turn there. But if you want to jot down, that's that Old Testament reference. Anytime you see quotes like that in the New Testament, and it's not somebody speaking, he's quoting the Old Testament. So here in verse six, he's quoting from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, and in Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying judgment coming on the people of Israel, and he identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. That when God's judgment comes, only what is built on His foundation with Him as the cornerstone will stand. When God's judgment comes, only what's built on the foundation of God's Word with Christ as the cornerstone will stand. Those who believe in Him, who come to the living cornerstone in faith and submit their lives to the master builder, for Him to place according to His will... They will not ultimately be put to shame. No matter what persecution or trials or suffering may come, in the end, when all the structures of the world collapse, God's church will stand. But the world creates a myriad of false or misshapen cornerstones. Satan tempts us to build our lives on alternate foundations. Autonomy. Sexual identity, social justice, political party, career, ambition, money, power, leisure, etc., etc., etc. The list could go on and on forever. To them, to those people, he quotes from Psalm 118.22 in verse 7, and then from Isaiah 8.14 in verse 8. And he refers to them as those who do not believe. They stumble over this cornerstone. The world rejects Jesus as the cornerstone and tries to build on their own ability. They try to build to the highest height that they can achieve, but they want to be in charge of the foundation. They want to form the cornerstone. They want to define how the building is going to be built and how it's going to go. This is not a New Testament idea. 1 Peter is at the very end of the New Testament, but this sounds eerily familiar to what happened in Genesis 11, the very beginning of the Bible, in the Tower of Babel. What you see is the sinful nature of man's heart never changes. No matter how much time passes, our technology changes, our circumstances change, but the sinful nature of our hearts that we're born with doesn't change. Humanity's natural inclination to rebel against God is as real and pervasive today as it was all the way back in the very beginning. But that doesn't change who Jesus is. He is the cornerstone, regardless of what you build on. And those who do not come to Him in faith stumble over Him by, it says, disobeying His word. Now when we talk of God's sovereignty as we've seen, in an, is an unmistakable theme throughout 1 Peter. There's no getting around it. It's, it's pervasive throughout this letter. Sometimes people get confused at this point, where it says they disobeyed as they were destined to. Now, that doesn't mean, it does not mean, hear me, hear me here, it does not mean they were born innocent, And God forced them to sin because of his predetermined will. That God somehow predestined them to sin and others to not. That's not what Peter is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. The reality is we're all born sinners. We're all destined to disobey God. None of us will choose God on our own. If left to our own devices, if God does not intervene, we're hopelessly lost. We cannot save ourselves. That is our destiny unless... Something miraculous happens, unless God intervenes. Now, especially in our modern American context, where our culture values autonomy and individualism, a.k.a. selfishness and control, where our culture values those things to the point of worship and even idolatry, that I am the master of me, I decide what's right for me, I'm the one in charge of me, That's what autonomy means. I am in control. I am in charge. My body, my rules. My choice. And in a society that has elevated that to the point of worship and idolatry, we tend to look at situations or passages like this, and we tend to view ourselves either as the building or the builder. Either it's all about me, either I am the building and it's all about me, or I am the builder and I am in control of the process. One of the the two. But the reality is that neither is true. Peter says we are the stones. We are the building blocks. The real question is, which builder are you submitting to? Are you submitting to God or are you submitting to the world? And which building are you a part of? Are you a part of the church with Christ as the cornerstone, guaranteed to stand in the end? Or something else that may look shiny now, but is guaranteed to crumble in the end? As believers, being given new life is not all about you. You are part of something bigger. Not only is new life not all about you, new life is all about Him. New life is all about Him. In 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through 10, finish this passage out, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a reminder here that you were purchased for a purpose. Purchased for a purpose. God's people are chosen by Him from all walks of life, of all pasts, of all colors, of all abilities and skill levels into a new race. Chosen by God. That's what we have in common. We're given the privileges of appealing directly to Him in prayer and worship. We're called and enabled to pursue holiness In our lives, personal holiness, we're purchased by the blood of Christ, out of utter darkness and hopelessness and into the marvelous light of Christ, united with Him and given an eternal, secured inheritance by His grace, not simply for our enjoyment or because we earned it. But why? So why? Look at the end of verse 9. So we can proclaim the excellencies of Him, Him being Jesus so we can praise Him, so we can worship Him, so we can live as salt and light in a corrupt and dark place, so we can be His ambassadors to the world, both in word and deed. Jew and Gentile alike, including us today, are members of God's church by His grace, not because of our ancestry or of any merit that we have in and of ourselves. If we have come to faith in Him, our hearts have been changed. We've been called to repent of our former ways to take those things off and lay them aside. We've been called to pursue and to desire God's Word. We're crafted and molded and fit into His church, called out of darkness, bought by His blood for His glory. He saved me for His glory. If you are a Christ follower, He saved you for His glory. We were purchased for a purpose, and that purpose is to proclaim the glory of God to praise His name, to shout the gospel from the rooftops. We've been given new lives, not so that we can spend it on our pleasure, just so that we can have satisfaction, not just so that we can feel comfortable, not just so that we have fire insurance, or so that we can, know, have, so that we can have eternal security. Those things are not necessarily bad, but that's not our ultimate purpose. It's that those around us might see the glory of God through us. The call of this passage and of this letter as a whole is for God's people to wake up from their spiritual slumber, to quit making excuses for spiritual laziness, and to live intentionally for the glory of God here in the last days. And these are the last days. As we come to the end of this passage, as Michelle and the praise team come up and we get ready to enter into a time of worship, I want you to ask yourself this question. Honestly, ask yourself this question. Are you living intentionally for God's glory? Are you living intentionally for God's glory? Are you fighting the sin in your life? Are you really? Are are you actively putting away the malice of your former self and pursuing the word of God? Are you pursuing him wholeheartedly? Are you shedding the layers of your old life and putting on the new, embracing the new? Are you submitting yourself and your life to the master builder and allowing him to fit you where he wills? Knowing that he sees the big plan. He sees his church. He has the blueprints. Are you worshiping and serving Him in community? What what cornerstone is your life built upon? What's the what is the foundation of your life, of what you do, of who you are? Are you presuming upon God's grace, taking it for granted, treating it lightly, or are you leveraging all that you have been given to make much of Him? Are you living intentionally for His glory? And if not, what needs to change? If you need to repent of spiritual laziness or selfishness in your life, today is the day. If you've not been pursuing God in His Word, if you've not been desiring the spiritual milk, today is the day. If you've never come to faith in Him, if you've never repented of your sin or had your heart changed by Him, today is the day. As we enter into a time of worship now, I want you to reflect on these things, to think about the words that we're singing. Think about the words here of Peter to these believers. And if you want to talk to someone about something that's about what's going on in your life, I would love to sit down and visit with you this week sometime at at your convenience. Or if you're saying, listen, this can't wait, I'll be at the front at the end of the service. Pastor Mark will be at the back. Our deacons will be floating around. Please don't hesitate to grab one of us. Pastor Mark or I, one of the deacons, we would love to walk you through or walk with you through whatever it is that God is working in your life here this morning. As we prepare our hearts for worship, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for... We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for... Or the, the hope that that brings us. Lord, help us not to just go through the motions as if salvation was something that happened to us a long time ago and now we can just live how we want. Lord, help us to, to approach life with the, the attitude that, that Paul describes. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Far be it from me. Lord, help us to to lean into You, to embrace this new life, to desire Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would just create an unquenchable thirst in our life for the spiritual milk of Your Word. Lord, that we would not be content to just sit and go through the motions, but that we would take Your worship as seriously as You do. That we would actively pursue You, that we would actively seek to align our lives with Your standards and with Your will. Lord, that we would leverage the resources and the time and the the jobs and the skills and the abilities that you've given us to make make much of your kingdom, to advance your kingdom in any way, shape, form, or fashion that we can. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just put our our hearts and souls into that, to take off the old, to put on the new, and to allow you to fit us where you would have us be. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that, that doesn't know you, that doesn't understand what what we're talking about, that doesn't have the same hope or encouragement that we find in this text, Lord, I pray that you would prick their hearts. Lord, convict them that they need to, to ask the question. Lord, drive them to seek your face. Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts as only you can open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Lord, at, at the end of the day, that's, that's all that matters. And anything built on that foundation is all that will stand. Lord, help us to, to work and desire to make sure that you are the cornerstone of our lives, that we are building on your foundation and everything we say and do. Lord, we ask that as we worship you this morning, that our worship, that you would find it pleasing, and that our heart attitudes would be one of love and adoration of you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.